All right, I'm turning to Matthew chapter 5 this evening. Matthew chapter number 5. And we'll be looking this evening at verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter number 5, verses 17 through 20. And our subject for this evening is Christ honors His Father's law. Christ honors His Father's law. Beginning there in verse 17, the Bible says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. We go back together and look there at verse number 17, the Lord's words, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The Old Testament stands in all of its parts with regard to the prophets and with regard to the law. The Lord Jesus Himself, of course, knew uh, that there would be those who would attempt to destroy His words. They would attempt to take what He said and try to twist them and to contort them and to turn them into something that He was not, in fact, saying. And Jesus in these passages, in these verses here, He's establishing and confirming in the deepest possible sense that everything that's written in Holy Scripture is going to be fulfilled. He makes no uh, exceptions for that. Uh, he establishes this deep sense of this great truth that the Word of God will in fact stand forever. He's speaking of some of the sayings of the men of old time. And we're going to see that phrase moving forward in this sermon. Uh, that he'll start saying things uh, that you have heard, but I say unto you. He begins this interaction with the people of the things that you've heard, but let me correct what you've heard. This is really the beginning of where Jesus is starting to unravel many of these things that you have heard it said... But I say unto you, because what had begun to happen is some of its uh, tradition of the Pharisees and some of the extra biblical teaching of the scribes had begun to enter in uh, to the people. So he proceeds to make these statements and he makes these very clear declarations about he himself being the fulfillment well, what in fact Jesus was the fulfillment of? He was the fulfillment of all of the pictures of the types, the prophecies, uh, the law. Uh, he, he's, he's indicating that the very law in which we have uh, will outlast even creation itself. The Old Testament is guarded. And we know one of the ways that the Bible teaches us that the Old Testament and it's all of its teachings is guarded is in 1 Peter 1.25 when it says the word of the Lord endureth forever. Uh, God's word, folks, will never be destroyed nor will it ever go away. 
Uh, no matter what man does to it, no matter what man attempts, no matter how many times man attempts to, uh, to criticize it, they have an impossible task of destroying the Word of God. Today, we're seeing more uh, biblical criticism. Uh, it's become a, uh, even a, a major. You can major in secular universities now in biblical criticism. And what the idea is, is to try to find leaks in doctrine, to try to find holes in Scripture, to try to tear apart the realities of what is being said. I would highly recommend against majoring in biblical criticism at a secular university. Uh, but that's for another day. But if the critical, the, the textual critics could have their way, uh, they would get rid of the entire Bible. Uh, they would get rid of Genesis to Revelation. But on a just as alarming, but just as frightening note in many ways, there's also the modern belief today that has infiltrated churches that simply says uh, the Old Testament really is not for us. We don't need the Old Testament. Uh, we only need the new. Uh, you cannot have an understanding of Christ and who he is and the full picture of who, what he came to do apart from the Old Testament. That's why we see so many pictures and types and shadows. They point to Christ. But the textual critic says, uh, let's do away with this book, or let's do away with this chapter, or let's do away with this verse. But yet, Christ himself says, and we're going to study this in just a moment, that not even a single jot or one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. When Christ came, he not only came to correct and to revise what the man's laws were, but to confirm the law of God itself. He honored the law. He honored his father's law. He came to confirm it, not to destroy it. Jesus says some very striking things in these verses. Uh, I would suggest to you that some of these statements are some of uh, Jesus' most uh, powerful expressions about the enduring power of the Word of God. Uh, often people say, how do we know we can trust the Scripture? Uh, here's some of those illustrations right here where Jesus himself says, listen, there's not a single thing going to pass away. The word of God is going to endure forever. Uh, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill all of those pictures at the Old Testament. He starts off there in verse 17 by making that very statement. Think not that I am come. You can see now that by saying that he's correcting some of that society's thought process. There had begun to be the rumor that Jesus was coming to take away or to destroy the Old Testament laws. Now, Jesus at this point is really, truly just entering into his earthly work. And it was important for us and for him to state clearly from the very beginning Here's what I do not want you to think. He's setting up clearly that he is in direct opposition to what the scribes and the Pharisees were standing for. In other words, Jesus was declaring, this is the side I'm on. This is the side that the Pharisees and the scribes are on. 
And he knew that they were going to attempt to accuse him of coming to destroy their law. And that Jesus was coming in order that he would abolish all of their customs. In many, many respects, they were under the impression falsely that Jesus was coming to take away everything that Israel stood for. So he tells them from the very beginning, he didn't come for that reason. He didn't come to destroy. He didn't come to take away. But rather he came to fulfill or accomplish all that was in the law and all that the prophets had said. Now the word destroy there is an interesting word. We, we have in our mind's eye what the word destroy means. And we think of something being brought to rubble or brought uh, down to the ground. Maybe something collapses. But the word destroy here has the meaning and the tense or the tone to it of meaning to repeal. To, to take away the authority from. What the Pharisees and scribes were most afraid of is that Jesus was going to come and he was going to supersede their highly uh, self-satisfied, self-centered divine authority that they believed they should have. The Pharisees were frightened of this, that Jesus was coming to repeal their divine authority. But even more importantly, maybe, is that Jesus was coming to set them free from the obligations of the law. In other words, the Pharisees had the false notion that Jesus was coming to say, listen, you know that Old Testament wall that used to be in effect? We're getting rid of all that. We're just, we're just going to pretend like it wasn't there. The Pharisees were afraid that that's what Jesus was going to do. But rather, we know the law in the Old Testament, when we refer to the law in the Old Testament, that is the first five books of Moses. That's called the law. But he says not only did he come, I'm not coming to destroy the law or the prophets. In other words, I'm not come to destroy the very books in which the prophets wrote. Now, there seems to be these two divisions that are here, these divisions that comprehend the Old Testament, that Jesus says that he came not to do away with or repeal the authority of the Old Testament. In other words, he's not taking the modern day approach today that says, listen, the Old Testament has no authority. Uh, there are churches all across this world that say the Old Testament has no authority for the New Testament believer. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to repeal and take away the Old Testament authority. In other words, the Old Testament still has the authority that it had. And he said it will continue to have that authority. And instead of coming to destroy, he says, but rather, but to fulfill. Now again, the sense here is not to add something new or to change it, but rather the sense is, is to complete the design of. In other words, Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy, but I came to complete the design or to complete the intent of what the law in the Old Testament was intended to point. In other words, I've come to fulfill what was predicted. What the prophets wrote about, what the Old Testament uh, stated in other words, I came to accomplish what was intended by the prophets and what was intended by the books in which they wrote. That's why I came. I didn't come to repeal it. Matter of fact, I came to complete it. I came to give you and to show you exactly what that is. Now, there are portions of Scripture where the word fulfill means to teach. This is not exactly that tense. 
The law of Moses, we know, if we were to study the Old Testament, that the law of Moses contained many different sacrifices and many different rituals, which were specifically designed to be a shadow of the coming Messiah. Read about a lot of those in Hebrews 9, and we get the sense of what Jesus was talking about. When Jesus came and offered himself as a sacrifice to to God, that was the fulfillment of those pictures. Now remember, fulfillment is not in the sense of teaching, but fulfillment here is to complete the design of or to accomplish what was intended by what the Old Testament sacrifices and pictures were showing us. Now, if we want to get a prediction about what the Messiah, how he would come, what he would do, then we read the Old Testament. We don't have so many predictions about Jesus in the New Testament. Our predictions about Jesus coming as the Messiah are found in the Old Testament. The New Testament, for the most part, is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. So the prophets, many of their predictions, many of their writings under the inspiration of the Spirit were with regard to his coming and his death. They were all to be fulfilled and fully accomplished by his life and by his sufferings. So that gives us the idea of what Jesus came to do. Now look at verse number 18. He continues to strengthen what he says. For verily I say unto you. Now again, I told you, here's where that statement begins. You're going to see this phrase used many, many times over the next few weeks. And everything Jesus is doing, he's saying, there's something that you've heard, but now I want to tell you what the truth is. He uses the word verily, which means truly. For truly I say unto you. It's interesting that he uses the word verily or truly in probably with regard to the false things in which they've heard. We're going to study about that because they had heard false things about some of the coming topics we're going to deal with. Teachings on murder and anger, teachings on temptation, teachings on divorce, teachings on oaths, on forgiveness, on loving one's enemies, on giving, on prayer, on fasting, on treasures, on worry. He's going to cover all these subjects and many times he's going, to, he's going to start the section by saying, you've heard that it was said by them of old. And then he's going to say, but I say unto you. He's on this mission to completely undo false statements that have been made about these teachings. So Jesus in this context says, for truly or certainly, it's a strong word of affirmation. Till heaven and earth pass. This expression really describes the fact that the law would never be destroyed until all would be fulfilled. It's it's basically, folks, the same as saying everything else may change. The earth may change. The heavens may pass away. But the law of God shall not be destroyed until its entire design and purpose has been accomplished. In other words, the world could burn up, the earth could disappear, and the law of God would still not be destroyed. This is a very, very strong phrase that Jesus is using. He uses it and he begins to even use their own thought process in writing and the meanings of words. 
Now, there are some people, and I'm just I'm I'm not suggesting anything to anybody under the sound of my voice tonight, but there's a lot of people who've never had it explained to them what this phrase one jot or one tittle refers to. And if you've never heard that, that's okay. It's it's one of those strange, obscure things in scripture that there's a lot of people say, you know, I've read that, but I never really knew what it was. Well, it's with regard to the writings of in the Hebrew alphabet specifically. The, the word jot, okay, is, and again, I'm going to spare us all the, the, the really in-depth things and just bring this right down to, the, right down to where we are. The word jot is, is reference to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's the smallest letter. Tittle, the word that's used here in the Greek, literally means a little horn and, or a point, an extremity. Several of the Hebrew letters were written with small points, little horns on them, which served to distinguish one letter from another. In other words, if you really wanted to get the right word, sometimes you got to make sure that you had the right tittle with the jot. <laughs> Because if you didn't, you might imply the wrong meaning. To change a small point of one letter, this is how important this is, to change a small point of one letter, therefore might vary the meaning of the word, which would then destroy the sense of the word. Now, I think we could all agree that matters. Right? The sense of the word matters. So if I just said, you know what, the jot is right, <laughs> but that point would give the indication of the actual meaning. That name, that little horn given to those points probably came from a custom or a manner in the Hebrew uh, society that resemble because it resembles a little horn. And the Jews were very cautious in writing their letters. As a matter of fact, they were so cautious in writing these letters, they considered the smallest change or omission a reason for destroying the whole manuscript. In other words, if you had a manuscript that was perfect except there was a tittle missing, you didn't just take out the phrase, you threw the whole manuscript away. Now that's pretty serious, right? I mean, if, if we're going along and we've been writing a manuscript for hours and we turn it in and uh, our professor looks at it and says, you left off one of the tittles there. The whole manuscript's thrown out now. Because by that thing, you've changed the entire sense of the manuscript. Now, it's fascinating to me that Jesus is taking this this far. But then again, it's not. Because when he continues to build upon this, when they were transcribing the Old Testament, that very expression, one jot or one tittle became a proverb in a sense. In other words, to the Jewish reader, they understood exactly what he meant when he said this. <laughs> this was not just Jesus being clever and trying to be creative and say, what's the way I can make them under? He's, he's identifying that's how serious they take this. Because he knew that the Jews would not settle for a manuscript that had a single tittle missing. 
because they would view it as a corrupt document because it changed the sense. Just one word, one tittle missing. So it became a proverb. So it really tells us that the very, even the very smallest part of the law should not be destroyed. That's why Jesus makes reference to it. He's, he's getting even further with them about what he's doing. Notice what he says now. He says, it shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now we know that the Jewish laws were commonly divided into three different types. We have the moral law, we have the ceremonial law, and we have the judicial law. The moral laws grow out of the nature of things. And because they grow out of the nature of things, the moral law is not to be changed. Okay? Morality is morality. The moral law is the moral law. The moral law was with regard to the responsibility of loving God, loving his creations, loving our neighbor as ourselves. These are part of the moral law. Those cannot be abolished. And it, it can never be made right to hate God or to hate our fellow man. So if someone comes along and tries to change the law to say, it's okay to hate God and it's okay to hate man, then we know that can't be of God because the moral law cannot be changed. Now, the Ten Commandments fall under the moral law. Now, much to people's surprise, many times this is surprising to people, the Ten Commandments have never been abolished, nor have they been replaced. So, when Jesus came, He didn't do away with the Ten Commandments. Even if the modern church is trying to get you to believe that, He didn't do away with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are part of the moral law. Now, this is where it's getting good, right? Because there are three types of law. You've got the moral, you've got the judicial, and you've got the ceremonial. Many times, Christians confuse these divisions. And that's what we're getting to here. Jesus is speaking very specifically about what he's saying here. Now, the ceremonial laws were different from the moral laws because the ceremonial laws were appointed to meet a certain state of society or to regulate the religious ceremonies of a people. Ceremonial law can be changed. Okay? Ceremonial law changes when circumstances change. Yet the moral, <clears throat> the moral law can't be touched. I'll prove it to you. You and I do not worship in the same manner in which the Israelites did. We don't have the same ceremonial law. Now, in general, okay, in general, the ceremonial law can be changed as necessary. However, the responsibility of obeying God and being faithful cannot be changed. In other words, God has never said it's okay to be unfaithful to me. It's okay to not love me. Here's kind of a crude illustration of this. A parent might allow their child, let's say it's a little girl, may allow that little girl to have 50 different dresses. 50 different dresses at different times. She can love each one of those dresses equally. The dress itself is nothing more 
than a matter of ceremony. She can change that. The child, though, and get this, that child, no matter which garment she has on, which are those 50 garments, she's still required to love and obey her father. You see, what I'm, you see where I'm getting here? 50 different dresses, all of those 50 dresses are permitted, but she still, no matter which dress she's in, she's still obligated to love the father. That's the moral law. That part can't be changed. So those laws that were designed to regulate matters of ceremony and rites of worship were allowed to be changed. Those requiring love and obedience to God and love to people cannot be changed. And Christ never attempted to change the moral law. In Matthew 19.19, I'm going to show you a couple of references here. Matthew 19.19, Jesus, as he's dealing with the uh, sorrowful young man, he gives him part of the moral law here. He says, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That was an unchangeable moral law that he was speaking to the sorrowful young man about. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first great, this is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is giving this example of the moral law, the ceremonial law. And the third type of law was the judicial law. The judicial law were the laws that regulated the courts and those courts that were contained in the Old Testament. They're of the similar nature of the ceremonial law. And occasionally the laws of a society or the laws of a court could be changed. The judicial law of the Hebrews was adapted to their own civil society. In other words, they took the law and they adapted it to their society. When they changed the form, when they changed the law, the previous law was no longer binding. Now I know this seems like a lot of information, but this is so important to where Jesus was getting to here. The ceremonial law in its fulfillment, in its completion, was fulfilled by the coming of Christ. The shadow has now, it's no longer binding. That ceremonial law that was a shadow is no longer binding because Christ has fulfilled it. But when Jesus came, the moral law, the very moral law was confirmed and unchanged. So what are we saying? There was some change to the judicial law. There's some change to the ceremonial law. But there was absolutely, positively no change to the moral law. That's what leads Jesus to make the next statement. He's clearly identifying that the moral law has not changed. And he says, Whosoever, verse 19, therefore shall break one of these least commandments. Now what's he talking about here? Judicial, ceremonial, or moral? He's talking about the moral. Okay, that's, this is key. Whosoever therefore shall break or violate or disobey one of these least commandments. You see, the Pharisees also had a, a tradition of dividing the precepts of the law into lesser and greater. And they taught that those who violated the former 
the lesser were guilty of a trivial offense only. In other words, they lessened it and said, that's not such a big deal. What Jesus himself is saying here, he goes on and says, and he says, whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching here that in his kingdom, there is to not to be a distinction made in the moral law between a lesser and a greater violation. In other words, those who taught that it was okay to violate the law of God in the lesser matters should be called the least. But that those who held the entirety of the law in high regard, they should be counted as called great in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is driving home at this point is that the meaning of this passage is, is that in the kingdom of heaven, that is in the kingdom of Messiah, or in what he is establishing, he that breaks the least of these commandments shall not be regarded as a proper teacher. The Pharisees, by the very nature of dividing the law into greater and lesser precepts, they made it a big deal. They treated the moral law as in the same regard as what the ceremony or what the judicial is. Jesus is saying in his kingdom, all this division and tradition is going to cease. But yet, people should be engaged in yielding obedience to all the laws of God without distinctions. If I was to tell you, and just use the easiest example, are any of the Ten Commandments more important than the other? Not, in their, not by nature, they're not. They're not in order of importance. If I'm guilty of breaking vi- commandment 10, it's no different than violating commandment 1. I'm not making a distinction between those. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Or these things that I say, is that a lesser offense against God? Now, we might say, well, what's this have to do with us today? Because this is what's being attempted, not just by the Pharisees, but it's being attempted by, quote unquote, the church of God today to try to make God and figure out what the lesser offenses are. If I begin to treat the Ten Commandments as saying this is supposed to be divided up into this is really bad, this one's getting worse, this one's really bad, and this one is the one you shine the light on the brightest, I'm missing the point. Now, in our humanity, we might say, all right, by by its very nature. Now, again, why am I saying all this? Because Jesus is getting ready to launch into teachings on a lot of what the Ten Commandments have to do with. And he's going to correct a lot of these thoughts. Somebody might say of the Ten Commandments, which one's the worst? Murder. That's got to be the worst one. But Jesus is not making a distinction between the extent of the importance of the violation here. Again, he's not talking about the ceremony. He's not talking about the judicial. He's talking about the moral law. He says, whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of God. Jesus very clearly is saying, he that teaches all the law of God, he should be teaching the law of God is binding. 
the whole of it should be obeyed without attempting to specify what's most important. This is kind of the idea of the hobby horse or the soapbox preacher who says, there's one sin I'm just going to spend the majority of my time hammering on instead of teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God. Now, let me just use an example. Maybe his, his soapbox is how you dress. Modesty. Is it an important teaching? Absolutely. But is it the only thing? No. The whole counsel of God should be taught as if the entirety is binding. I can't tell you how many times over the last 10, 15 years, I've heard people make this comment. Well, that's not applicable to us. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would we look at any law of God and just simply say, that doesn't apply to me? Now, I understand the context. There were some things that were said to, to Israel. There are some things, and, and I, I know we're getting into some muddy waters there. But you have to ask yourself the question, why do I want to find a loophole out of the laws of God? Why do I want to make a distinction? Why do I want to simply say, you know, that's binding and that's not binding? Jesus is very simply declaring here that the whole law should be taught. There should be this attempt to obey it without attempting to specify which is the most important. Jesus uses examples going forward to the Pharisees like straining at a gnat. These are not random statements. They're all going back to what he's saying right here about you Pharisees making distinctions between what sins are really, really bad, and then you're writing off the ones you think are not so bad. So what do we learn here? That Jesus is teaching, and again, he's talking to the religious leaders and talking about them, and he's basically calling these Pharisaical teachers who don't teach this as unworthy teachers who shouldn't be listened to. <laughs> it's... He is, he's undoing them right before their eyes. Because he knows those Pharisees don't teach the whole counsel of God. They strain at a gnat. They make a big deal over the little things or the big things. They're making distinctions. So what do we learn? We learn that all the law of God should be binding upon, should be binding upon Christians. We should look at these things and say, you know, this isn't a matter of me trying to find a way out of it. But why am I hesitant to obey it? What did James say? Now, James is not the Old Testament. But in James 2.10, here's what it says. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, that's New Testament. That's not old. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Did he or did he not just say, don't make a distinction between killing and adultery? Because he said, if you make, less, you make less of one, you're still a transgressor of the law. For he, or so speak ye, and so do, as they, shalt, they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth, rejoiceth against judgment. So the law of God should be binding. Number two, the commands of God should be preached in their proper place. 
Number three, all who pretend that there are any laws of God so small that they don't need to be obeyed. Jesus is clearly saying, you're unworthy of the kingdom if you think any of my laws are unworthy of being obeyed. Now again, keep in mind, and this is where we get ourselves in trouble. You've got to remember the distinction between the ceremonial law and the judicial law and the moral law. Jesus is talking about the moral law. Now, what part of the moral law do you think has changed? I bet you can't find one. Now, we can find judicial law that's changed. We can find ceremonial law that's changed. But moral law, Jesus has not changed. It was still against the moral law to kill in Jesus' day. It's still against the moral law to kill in our day, right? This is all the same thing. So all, all true humility has respect to the commandments of God. In Psalm 119, I love what the psalmist wrote, wrote here about this. In Psalm 119.6, he says about the law of God. Psalm 119.6 Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. Humility simply says all the commandments of God should be observed. And then we're going to finish with this and we're going to expand on this more because this statement alone has so many implications. And I'm just going to introduce this. Jesus says in verse 20, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's that first use of that phrase, for I say unto you, that except your righteousness, reference to your holiness, he's referencing the nature of righteousness. He's talking about the conduct of your life. He's indicating that unless you are more holy than they are, you cannot be saved. And we're going to drive this home next week, so I just want to kind of give this as a preview. Notice he says that except your righteousness shall exceed or abound more. Jesus means that unless they have more real holiness of character than the scribes and Pharisees, they could not be saved. Now he's going somewhere with this. But he says the righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What did their righteousness consist of? Outward observances, don't miss this, of the ceremonial and the traditional law. They offered sacrifices, they fasted often, they prayed much, they tithed, they observed the ceremonies of religion, but they neglected justice, they neglected truth, they neglected purity, and they neglected holiness of heart. And he says they are not suitable subjects for the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that in all their outward righteousness, they are not suitable for the kingdom of heaven because they do not have 
genuine, true righteousness. You see, the righteousness of the true Christian is seated in the heart. It's not found in the ceremonial observances and it's not found in those things. So what Jesus is saying, he did not come to repeal the law. He came to confirm it. His commands are eternal. And if any of those teachers break his law or teach that even the least command has been nullified or been repealed, that they would be considered least in the kingdom. There's no such thing as this observing the outward observances that makes a man or a woman suitable for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus fulfilled the ancient law. His Spirit works in us in order to, for us to do and will and do God's pleasure. In other words, we should want to be obedient to Him, not looking for ways out of obedience. That's really what He's talking about here. But we should not be we should not be worse in conduct than what the Pharisees were. Uh, the kingdom of God is for the obedient, not because of our works. Works don't save us, but it should require of us or it should be the desire of us to be obedient. That's what we talk about Paul. Paul says that the gospel doesn't give us outward liberty to sin because we have some greater supposed inner Humility, but rather what ought to be produced outwardly is a result of what's going on on the inside. See, the Pharisees were only concerned about what's going on on the outward, not what was going on on the inward. So next week, what we'll do is we'll look more in depth at, at this statement about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and really what Jesus is intended here. And then we'll launch into, if time permits, into this first section of teachings, which is the teachings on murder and on anger. And so Jesus has a lot to say about that as well. All right, well, let's go ahead and we'll stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. And I hope you'll think on these things, meditate on these truths. What Jesus was saying here tonight was of utmost importance, especially as we think about uh, the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we know, Lord, we know that in our humanity, we fail, we sin against you. But Lord, may we not be found trying to find reasons to not obey. Lord, we realize that throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, Lord, we, we realize there are changes in the ceremony. There are changes in the traditions. But Lord, may we desire to be obedient to your word. Lord, realizing first and foremost that the moral law has not changed. Jesus Christ did not come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it. And Lord, may we grasp this great truth tonight through the Spirit. Lord, we thank you, we praise you for your goodness, and we thank you for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your long-suffering. Lord, we know that we are most unworthy of all the gifts we've received, most especially the gift of salvation. And that, Lord, you and your merciful, gracious God that you are, you granted us the gift of salvation. 
Lord, help us now as we go our separate ways. May we meditate on these truths. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen. All right. Thank you so much.